1948 speech to the House of Commons, Winston Churchill said this line that was paraphrased from a Spanish philosopher. Those who fail to learn from history are condemned to repeat it. I love that quote, especially when I am talking about other people who haven't learned from their history. It's very convenient to look at people and say, yeah, they need to learn something. But maybe what might do me even better is if I could look at myself and wonder, how do I need to learn from history? That is the point of my message today. It is to help us see that we as God's covenant people need to learn from history. There is a history that has a lesson to teach us. After the reign of King David and his son Solomon, his son Solomon, um, the nation of Israel repeatedly strayed from God. Uh, the song we sang today, Prone to Wonder, Lord, I Feel It, is not a new syndrome. It is something that we're all prone to, and they certainly were. But they strayed so far that they engaged in idol worship, something that was so counter to what God had told them to be about. And they suffered major decline as a nation, eventually splitting into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, Israel, which was consisting of ten tribes, and the southern kingdom, Judah, which consisted uh, of just two of the tribes. God warned both of these nations repeatedly that they <clears throat> were going to be judged if they did not repent and turn from their idolatry, from their wicked ways. But they continued in their rebellion. And the Lord eventually followed through in his word. And he had Assyria conquer Israel, the northern kingdom, in 722 BC. And Babylonia conquered Judah, the southern kingdom, in 586 BC. About 40 years before Jerusalem fell, which was the capital of Judah. <clears throat> God raised up his prophet, Jeremiah. If you have your Bibles or devices, if you turn with me to the book of Jeremiah, you shouldn't have a hard time finding it. It is the longest book in the Bible. I, thought you, I think you think it was Psalms, didn't you? No, nope, it's Jeremiah. By word count, Jeremiah is actually uh, the biggest book in the Bible. Jeremiah chapter 1, and we'll look at verse 4 in a moment. <clears throat> Jeremiah <clears throat> used his scribe Baruch to describe and pen this letter, and it's, this is kind of a compilation of, of Jeremiah's messages and his visions and what he was to proclaim on behalf of the Lord, and he also wrote the book of Lamentations, which just means weeping, which is why Jeremiah got the nickname, the weeping prophet. Jeremiah was raised <clears throat> by God to call Judah into repentance, <clears throat> and at first glance, this seemed a little odd because at the time of Judah's call, the moral condition of Judah uh, was not all that bad. It had had a kind of a rebound. It, uh, it had a good king, a young king at eight years of age named Josiah who came to understand what God's word was about because they found the book of Deuteronomy and actually had it read to the king and he said, where has this been all my life? 
It's sad when you're the people of God and you can't find the word of God anywhere around. <clears throat> and so he restored the reading of scripture and he restored the worship of Yahweh in the temple and he restored so much of what the law laid out for them. And there was an uptick in morality in Israel. But even though worship of Yahweh had returned to the temple, idol worship was still going on in the high places all around the nation. Thus proving that God's people still weren't for God. After Josiah died, his successors, uh, who should have done what was right in the sight of the Lord, did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and they viciously opposed Jeremiah, and Jerusalem indeed fell to Nebuchadnezzar, just as Jeremiah promised. The book of Jeremiah offers quite a bit of history. And I can't help but ask myself what we as God's people failed to learn from it and might be doomed to repeat. You see, we do live under the new covenant and that makes a lot of things different. Praise the Lord. But many of the issues Jeremiah faced and the heart conditions of God's people in his day still remain today. Even in God's covenant people. Which is the church. It's no longer Israel. It's not our nation. It's not any other nation. The new Israel is the church of Jesus Christ. And so when I speak of God's covenant people, I'm talking about those that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Those that have been called out of darkness and brought into marvelous light. Scripture backs me up on this. I'd be happy to talk to you about it if you disagree. What we learn from reading Jeremiah could actually change the way we live our own lives. We need to learn, like he did, to be faithful in the midst of such strong opposition. We need to learn to maintain integrity even when those around us do not. And as we look over these next few months at this book of Jeremiah and the life of this prophet, I hope that we'll see how he walked in deep faith, but how he also engaged a world that needed faith more than anything else. And so with that as an opener, let's look together at Jeremiah chapter 1, and verse 4. Now, the word of the Lord came to me saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. It all began with the word of the Lord. It always does. Anything that God does begins with his word. And here's the powerful realization. The word of God is Jesus made flesh. Not only is it spoken by God, it is delivered to us in a form that we could relate to. He dwelt among us. He made his tabernacle with us. The word became flesh and he dwelt with us. It always begins with the word of God. But as A.W. Tozer wrote, 
the majority of us cannot hear anything but ourselves. And we cannot hear anything God says, but to be brought to the place where we can hear the call of God is to be profoundly changed. That was certainly the case for Jeremiah. Before he knew God, God knew him and called him using three very distinct phrases in this verse five that would change Jeremiah's perspective on how he would live his life. The first, God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I love that. What is a statement, right? It tells me that our identity starts with God, not with ourselves. That he created us, he knew us, and he determines what we will be. I know there are people in this day and age that are, that are arguing with what God did and how God determined and what God created. And I'm just here to say to you, that is a sad, miserable plight to go down the path of trying to identify yourself based off your own feelings, desires, and passions. <clears throat> we don't get identified by what drives us and our passions. We are identified by what God says about us. The word of the Lord. Eugene Peterson wrote, long before we ever got around to asking questions about God, God had been questioning us. Before it ever crossed our minds that God might be important, God singled us out as important. We are known before we know. This is the primary reason that I am opposed to legalized abortion. Because of this verse. <clears throat> Something our courts and politicians <clears throat> have decided is a right and a personal choice. Now, I want to be very careful, and I always do anytime I speak about abortion, to say to anyone, anyone that have, may have had an abortion, anyone that may have contributed or helped someone get an abortion, God loves you. There is healing, there is forgiveness in the Lord, there is restoration, and He can take what is broken and turn it into a beautiful vase of restoration and redemption. <clears throat> he does that for anyone that is in sin. And that, by the way, that's, that's pretty much all of us, right? Anybody here not a sinner? Go ahead and raise your hand. All right, good. So I'm talking to the right crowd. But God is the creator of life. And the arbitrary disposal of human life is not a right. It's an abomination. It's a sin. Life begins at conception, and in fact, who we are begins before we were even formed in the womb. I want to love all those who have differing opinions, and I really work hard at doing that, but that can't change for me. And if you hold the word of God true, it can't change for you. A university ethics professor presented a case to his a college ethics class. He said this, a man has syphilis and his wife has tuberculosis. They've had four children. The first was born blind. The second died. 
The third was born deaf, and the fourth has tuberculosis. And now the mother is again pregnant, considering an abortion. What do you recommend? Well, the class went to debating and beginning to decide what they would see and what is ethical and what should be done. And they, they strongly debated back and forth with spirited discussion. And finally they voted and they indeed said, we agree, she should abort the child. To which the professor said, congratulations, you just killed one of the world's greatest composers, Ludwig von Beethoven. We don't know what a life will bring. We don't know what God may do in any given life, no matter what their limitations may appear to us. And to take that decision out of God's hand is messing with God's creation and therefore messing with God. For those who hold the standard of this word as our standard, we must see that all life is sacred. And I do mean all lives, in all situations, no matter what the odds or how inconvenient, no matter in the womb or at the border, no matter what color or what class, if God knows us before we were formed in the womb and he created us in his image, we cannot justify the extermination or the diminishment of any life. The second thing that God said to Jeremiah in verse five, before you were born, I consecrated you. Now, this means that before Jeremiah was born, God picked him. He chose him. He set him apart for divine purpose. Now, all of you know that I really enjoy sports. I'm not any good at them. Don't ask me to play a sport, but I'm really good at watching them. And I'm really good at telling you stats and figures and scores and rooting for my team, but just don't put me on the field. And all my fellow friends as I was growing up knew that. <laughs> and so when it came time to picking two teams that would compete against each other, I was almost always the last to be picked. It's not like they didn't like me, they just knew I had no abilities whatsoever. You know, I went from being, a, from being a zero in my own mind to what Eugene Peterson says, being a minus in their mind. Um, but that's not how God does it. That's not how God sees it. He doesn't assess strengths and weaknesses before he chooses. Before I was good at anything, he decided I was good for something. I was good for what he was doing. James prayed this this morning as he talked about our joining him and what he is doing. And Eugene Peterson also talked about it. This is what he said in his book, Run With Horses. God is out to win the world in love and each person has been selected in the same way that Jeremiah was to be set apart to do it with him. He doesn't wait to see how we turn out to decide to choose or not to choose us. Before we were born, he chose us for his side. He consecrated us. 
We have been chosen. If we are in Christ, he chose us not only to be recipients of his good grace, but to be transmitters of it to others. You can't be reconciled with God unless you are going to be a minister of his reconciliation. You don't get in on the goodness of God unless you're willing to transmit and proclaim and declare the goodness of God to all those that you meet. He, if he saved you, then he picked you to be on his team. Are you sitting on the bench? Are you on the field? He consecrated Jeremiah. And if he's chosen you to be saved in his grace, then he's consecrated you as well. Third, God said to Jeremiah, I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Now, this word appointment literally means gave. It's the Hebrew word Nathan. Interesting. Think of the prophet Nathan. God gave Jeremiah as a prophet to the nations. He gave him. That's what God does. He gives. He's a giver. He's generous like that. He gave his only begotten son. And he gave his servant Jeremiah as a prophet to the nations. And he gave that music to me right now. I was wondering if I was just hearing angelic singing or what. So God gives. Now, some of us might be sitting here looking at this and saying, just wait a minute. What does God think he's up to? Jeremiah has rights. God never consulted him. God can't just give him away like that. But actually, he can. We can argue with him all we want, but it doesn't change the fact that he is God and we are not. That he is the potter and we are the clay. That he is the artist and we are the canvas. That he is the giver and he intends to give us away. He didn't consult you about this. He didn't take a vote. This is not a democracy here. He gives as he sees fit. If you seek him, he will be found. He promises that. But he will also give you away. Get ready. Get ready. If you seek him, you will find him. But you better be ready to put on your boots, your marching boots, because it's time, in time, he will give you away. Freely you've received, freely give. That's how God does things. God knew Jeremiah before he was formed in the womb. God chose him before he was born. God appointed him. He gave him away as a prophet to the nations. And this caused Jeremiah to let go of his own plan and to receive God's plan without fear without trepidation. Like Jeremiah, you and I, if we are in Christ, must understand that our future is not our own. We don't determine the course. We are not masters of our own universe. We are slaves to righteousness. 
We are servants of the most high God. We are his. We follow. We don't lead. He gets to give us away. He knows us by name. He commissioned us for his service. And he has a distinct purpose for us because we belong to him. Now, Jeremiah did have something to say about this. He did raise an objection. I'm sure he did it with trepidation, but he still raised it. Look at verse six. Then I said, ah, Lord God. And that's not like the song we used to sing. Ah, Lord God. No, it's like, ah, Lord God. Maybe it's that way. I don't know. Maybe not. It was not. He wasn't excited about it. Oh, are you serious? Oh, Lord God, behold, I do not know how to speak, for I am only a youth. The Lord said to me, do not say I am only a youth, for to all to whom I send you, you shall go, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. When you think about it, it's quite common for people to have issue with God's call. A lot of people did, even in the Bible, like Moses. Moses is called of God at the burning bush, and he's like, who am I to go to Pharaoh and lead your children out of Egypt? Just, I don't, I'm slow of speech. Sounds like he and Jeremiah could talk about a few things, if they could learn how to talk. And and Moses wasn't the only one. I mean, whether he had a stuttering or stammering problem or whether he was just feeling insecure because he had kind of gone through the, the ringer, I don't know, but he felt inadequate and so did Abraham and so did Jacob and so did Gideon and Isaiah and David and Peter. They all had issues with God's call. They expressed doubts about whether God had really picked the right guy or not. And it's telling that the very first thing that Jeremiah says in the book that bears his own name, the very first sentence that he speaks himself is, I don't know how. I don't know how. Does anybody else say things like that? I don't know how you're going to do what you're saying, God. I don't know why you're calling me to this. I'm unqualified. I'm not skilled. I don't have the right education. I'm not trained like others. Surely there are experts that you could pick for this that would be far better at doing it than I am. Jeremiah objects by pointing out his inadequacy. In his mind, he's handicapped because of his age and because of his lack of experience, because he doesn't know how to speak with eloquence and gravitas. He can't do it. He's convinced that he's not qualified to be a prophet to the nation, but God is not so convinced. Jeremiah just thinks, man, there's no way. It kind of reminds me of people who suffer from imposter syndrome. You know what I'm talking about? Imposter syndrome is is that fear of being found out. (laughs) 
in a workplace or in some sort of duty responsibility that you think, uh-oh, I may get in that place and then people are gonna figure out, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to do it. I'm not capable, I'm not talented. They thought I was, but I'm not. And so therefore I'm an imposter. The truth is, apart from what God does in us, we're all imposters. This is what the Lord said to me carefully when he rattled my cage and told me that he wanted me to come back into pastoral ministry. And I said to him, I'm not qualified. And I felt him say, you never were. We never are. If it's based on our qualifications, none of us get called. It's not based on what we can do. It's based on what he will do. Jeremiah says, oh, you got the wrong guy here, Lord. Ah, Lord God, oh, please, oh, no, go somewhere else. I'm not your guy. I, I don't even know how to talk very well. And I'm young. And I'm so young, they won't pay attention to me. Jeremiah wasn't wrong about his inadequacies. Did you notice that God didn't argue with him? He didn't refute Jeremiah's statement. He didn't say, oh, no, 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 Jeremiah, you're not young. No, Jeremiah, you, you talk real well. He didn't argue with Jeremiah. He just said, I'll be with you and I'll deliver you. God doesn't respond to our fears of inadequacy with reassurances of our own strength. He gives us a reminder of his strength. I'll show you where to go, God says. I'll tell you what to say and I'll be with you and I will deliver you. He didn't give him more years. He didn't give him speech therapy. He gave him himself. In the end, it's God's faithfulness that empowers us to answer the call in the first place and to walk it out for the rest of our lives. Look how God addresses Jeremiah's reluctance. Verse nine, then the Lord put, his, put out his hand and he touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have set you this day over nations and over kingdoms to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. I'm reminded of what Tula's aunt Vula said in my big fat Greek wedding. She was explained to Eon Miller's parents at the wedding exactly why Gus and Maria Portocalis, why they were giving such an extravagant gift to the newly wedded couple. And she looked at them and she said, this is what we do. This is what God does. This is what God does. He's extravagant. He doesn't just give us what we need. He gives us himself. He touches where we are inadequate. 
He puts his words into our mouths. He is with us. He will forever deliver us. And he gives us his power and his purpose that will be accomplished as we go with him for the rest of our lives. He knew us before we were formed in the mother's womb. He consecrated us before we were even born. He picked us. He picked you. He, he looked around and he said, you're the one. I want you. He picked you and then he consecrated and he has set you, appointed you. He has given you as a witness to his love and grace. To your neighbors and to the world. To your Jerusalem, to your Judea, to your Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth. We are called of God. It's time to get busy. Amen.